coffee shop at Duke University is getting national attention. Two employees were fired after a school leader complained about music playing in the business. WRL's Adam Owens talked with both employees about what happened. Back to Vox Popularum, the Vox Popcast. I am Chris Maverick. We are back in the studio today instead of live. Uh, once again, I'm here with Wayne. Hey guys, what's up? And we have returning after a couple weeks off, we have Katia. Hello. So this is a little bit of a different episode, or hopefully it should be very enlightening and fun for everybody. And maybe fun's not the right word given what we're going to be talking about. But one of the things that when we talked about starting the show, we wanted to do pop culture. And because most weeks it's me and Wayne, it's usually comic book related, but it doesn't necessarily mean comic books there. Believe it or not, somehow there's other stuff in culture other than comics. It's hard what? to believe. What? <laughs> yeah. You mean Isn't the Avengers? <laughs> everything should be the Avengers. Actually, no, everything shouldn't be everything the Avengers. Uh, and, love yeah, but... It's also it's also not just movies. It's not just video games. It's not just geek stuff. The idea of the show was we wanted to analyze all of culture that is popular right now. So it's sort of contemporary culture. And sometimes that's not necessarily fun fictional stuff. Sometimes that's things that are in the news and things that are interesting. And sometimes there's a personal connection, which is kind of what this show is about today, because this story was brought to my attention originally by Katia. And then we sort of referenced and realized it was linked to some other stories. So for the people who haven't bothered to read the blog and everyone should be reading the blog before the show, because our blog is awesome and because we want the hits and we want to be famous. (laughs) But until then, for the people who haven't read the blog, give people a little background on what we're talking about. Yeah. So as I've mentioned in a previous episode, I'm a PhD student at Duke University. And if you were paying attention to the news at the beginning of month, the month, you might have seen us popping up in ways that were not great. So yeah, there's more details in the blog. So definitely check out the post. And there's lots of links to the original reporting. But basically what happened was, I believe on May 4th, our vice president of student affairs, Larry Mineta, walked into a campus coffee shop um, called Joe Van Gogh. It's a very fun name. And basically inside that coffee shop, shop, which he apparently frequents on um, regularly, he heard Young Dolphs get paid, which is a rap song, and found the lyrics offensive, basically, and complained to the cashier, and the cashier apologized and promptly turned off the music, as I understand. Um, and then, you know, normally in a situation, you would assume, like, this ended there, right? Um, but one would hope. One would hope. Uh but, but that would be a that would be a very short show. So I'm assuming it's a very short not. show. But it, like one would assume that would happen. I think it's particularly on a college campus because it's not exactly like rap and hip hop and things like that are that unusual. But anyway, what, what happens is Larry Manetta goes to basically the director of Duke's Dining Services, uh, passes along the complaint. It eventually gets to the owner of Joe Van Gogh, which isn't a Duke property. It's a local coffee shop in Durham, North Carolina that contracts with Duke. And then basically somewhere in there, whether it was explicitly stated or not, Joe Van Gogh got the impression that they were being basically told to fire both of the workers that were on staff that day, Brittany Brown and Kevin Simmons. 
and they were fought, fired the following Monday, basically over playing a song that one, you know, middle-aged administrator found offensive. My understanding is that it wasn't so much that they played the song. They had like an iPod or an iPhone connected to a radio and it was just whatever happened on Spotify. Yeah, I think, I think they were literally playing like the Spotify, like hip hop, like best hits kind of like thing, like the auto-generated radio station kind of situation right. um so yeah so this is the the short version of it is basically this has spawned sort of a number of student demonstrations and a lot of responses it also went viral very quickly so basically it went into the um, local indie week the t- like tuesday morning and then i think by that afternoon was in the washington post and the atlantic and like that entire week was just it, it was the first time like I'd really watched something like that that I was per- like felt personally connected to go viral, which is part of why like this we're having this episode. It's also sort of like like in keeping with a the theme of a lot of responses that Duke has had to a number of things, which again there's more on the website and the blog. But basically, like Larry, Larry Manette in particular has defended things like hate speech. Um, mm-hmm. basically saying as freedom of speech rights and things like that. So the issue was basically that workers, because of the precarity of the situation they're in as contract laborers, were fired for something which shouldn't have been a big deal. And it was also something that shouldn't have been a big deal that was specifically about a song. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of the important contexts, which is also part of the, a lot of the speculation of why both workers were fired, is that the cashier, Brittany Brown, is an African-American woman. Yeah. So he he was offended by the usage of the N-word in a song that she wasn't singing. It was just on the radio. He also seemed to have the lyrics wrong, but he uh, he referred to the F-word and the N-word. And that was offensive to African-Americans. And that's why the African-American, which he is not, but that's why the African-American cashier had to be fired. Right. And then there's, there's like some speculation, which I don't, it is speculation that basically the other worker was fired in part so that it wouldn't seem like they were specifically firing order of color because Kevin Simmons is not black. So I think, I think what this, what this comes around to for me is like this question of who is sort of allowed to participate in campus culture, because I think this is something that you know, a worker's being fired for playing a song that like I hear similar music played on campus all the time and Duke has paid like performers that have similar music to come perform in many cases, Mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of dollars. And so there's, there's an element of hypocrisy here of like, this is normal on campus culture, Mm -hmm. like on Duke's campus in particular. And I think campuses around the country. Yeah. And like, this is, I mean, especially even the idea that it's on the Spotify sort of like best hits list of like hip hop. It's like, this is not like a deep cut. Uh, (laughs) It's pretty normal. Right. I mean, it's a public place, but it's not like this was the nursery school or somewhere that children are normally in. This is the campus coffee shop. Right. And I think the other thing is it's like, I think, I mean, for me, it also raises the question of like, to what degree are campuses actually public spaces? Because it's the students that pay for them. And most of the students would play similar, would play the same music. And actually, one of the protests was just that. Then, like, the morning uh, after they were fired, a group of students basically went and were dancing to Young Dolph's music in front of a coffee shop. And even, I mean, had they done that in a way that was not connected with protest, which, you know, I can imagine Duke students doing, that wouldn't, as far as I'm aware, raised any eyebrows from administrators. But when it comes in the context of, like, having it in a coffee shop with somebody that basically he has power over, it's a complaint that basically, you know, removes someone's livelihood. Right. And from what the story says, Joe Van Gogh seems to have, you know, apologized a lot to the two employees they fired and said, we didn't want to do this. We were, uh, it, I guess Duke 
denies that they were being forced to, but Joe Van Gogh claims that they were being forced to fire the two employees against their will. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things is that it's not that I think Duke is not sort of owning up to is the fact that when an administrator who's like one one of the higher administrators in the in the university calls a coffee a local coffee shop that like probably has a pretty pretty heavy dependency on that location for like maintaining its business, mm-hmm. that means something. Like regardless of even if you didn't say the words you must fire these people, there's a power dynamic in play that Duke is not sort of owning up to. It makes it an implied order. Yeah, it does. It does. And it's like, I think it's like the idea is sort of like, oh, I would like Larry Mineta, I think is sort of framing this as the idea of like, and Duke as a whole, I think is framing this as the idea of, oh, he just tried to make a simple complaint as an, as a private person. And it's like, well, no, you're also an administrator at a university at which that coffee shop is dependent on that contract. Mm-hmm. And so that's a different, like, that, like, it's basically pretending to be a normal customer of that coffee shop rather than someone who is indirectly, certainly, but ostensibly also their boss. A normal customer calls or fills out a complaint card at best. Honestly, mostly I, if I if I have a problem with a restaurant, mostly I just leave angrily. But generally, you know, you, you fill out a complaint card. You may be asked to speak to a manager. A normal customer can't speed dial the head of dining services. Right, exactly. And then, I mean, for me also, it's gotten weirder from there is basically that, like in the official response, and this is something I wrote on the blog post, is that basically they wrote... Duke should be a place where these things don't happen. They're a painful reminder that we have more work we have more work to do to make our Duke community the dynamic, diverse, and welcoming community of students, faculty, and staff we aspire to be. And this is the part that gets me. A place where our daily challenges are grappling with a new concept, a new idea, or a new way of thinking, and not about how someone has behaved or how we ourselves have behaved that has caused mm-hmm. others pain or hurt. And I mean, one of the things that I think that I, I think I'm hoping we're gonna talk about is that implied in this is not only the idea of we shouldn't pay attention to how these power dynamics are playing out that we're talking about, but we also shouldn't pay attention to sort of the cultural history behind these kinds of events, right? Because mm-hmm. what we talked about is like, so this is an African-American artist and an African-American cashier. It's a white administrator. It's on a Southern campus in North Carolina with a his- with like a complicated history of race in and of itself. And there's all of these different dynamics that are at play. And that, I mean, my reading of this would be like, this is actually an expression of a racialized labor history that's been going on in Duke's campus for decades. Um, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm also an active member of the Duke Graduate Students Union, who works with all of the other various unions on campus, including Local 77, which goes back basically to 1968. And so there was, a, in the silent visual of 1968, which uh, was basically the morning Martin Luther King's assassination. And it actually included in that was a strike on behalf of campus workers and a student boycott of dining services to basically improve the condition of dining workers at Duke. And that was specifically a moment that was like talking about both the intersection of race and labor on Duke's campus. And one of the things Mm -hmm. that we as the unions have been talking about is the way that actually conditions haven't really changed since 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the other part of this is that this is actually far be it from this being a specific, in, like a specific instance. This is actually part of a long history of labor at Duke. And I would also say a lot of other institutions that look like Duke. 
And so I think the thing that becomes really complicated, but for me, from a cultural perspective, is that what's basically being suggested by Duke is that we should basically ignore the history and Mm -hmm. the culture that has produced these things in order to move forward, rather than actually having a moment where we think about all of these dynamics, because in this moment, you're having labor rights coming together with race, with power, and all these different issues that actually, if you sat there and really thought about all the dynamics involved, I think you would come to a much different answer than if you just sort of, oh, we're we're done with this now, we need to move past it. I mean, there's so much going on there. For starters, referring to his problem with the song being the usage of the N-word in the song. So the basic complaint at the very bottom is, oh, okay, I was offended by a racial epithet. And you can sort of start there. You can sort of say, all right, that makes sense. This is this is kind of a thing that, you know, maybe there becomes a question. Should this be playing on the radio? But before you can even address that, you have to talk about the things that that you said, which are there are there are power dynamics in play. You're the person complaining. And this may seem unfair, but the person complaining about an act of racism was a white person complaining to a black person about being racially offensive to black people. So that's problematic in and of it, in and of itself. Never mind the fact that she wasn't playing. I mean, she wasn't singing the song. It's not even clear to me that she's the one who put the iPod in, in the first place so much as she just happened to be working the cashier. My understanding is that like basically what happens, she was responsible for picking the music for that day, but what happens was she just basically picked a Spotify list. Okay. Do do that sort of thing all the time at my store. So, Right. That's where I was leaning to. So there's a question of even if you want to set the racism issues aside, which I think is super problematic and and I'm not going to do that for long. But the, the first question is, is Duke a public space where we are supposed to think about keeping all content PG or below for because think of the children there? You know, Duke is a college campus. There aren't a lot of children wandering around, but even if there were. This is not this is not a regulation of the FCC airwaves kind of situation. And I was actually going to say what Wayne just referenced that Wayne, you work at a store Mm -hmm. you have. I've been in your store. Uh, Your store is not really a chain, but the music is produced by there's a boombox on the counter that you can plug an iPod into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we um, and, and before we moved, when we had a radio in the store, we tuned it into the college stations nearby more than anything else. Yeah, we we all choose our music. We play stuff. And there's certainly stuff on my iPod that's not family appropriate. I do try to be somewhat aware. There's certain things I won't play in the store um, just because I, I know uh, some of it depends. If there's nobody around, I'll put anything on. But I am aware if kids walk in. I, I, my ear will go, okay, what, what's on? Do I need to turn this down or whatever? But we don't think a whole lot about that. I haven't worked retail and I've done it in the past, but it's been a while, but I have worked in public spaces before. And I imagine it works the same way as any other, uh, any, any other colorful language conversation. This podcast, for instance, we made a conscious decision when we said this, this is going to be pseudo academic conversations where we can say fuck. That was, that was part of, that was part of the idea. I was in the store on Tuesday. Uh, I was doing some, some research and I was in the store for what, an hour and a half. Um, basically, basically counting comic books. And while I was there this week, the people in the store were Wayne, Jeff, who's the owner of, of the store, 
Um, I think Jimmy was there. Jimmy is another employee. And then later in the day, Zora, who's another employee, showed up. Most of the time, I was literally the only person there who did not work there. Yeah, it's it's Tuesday afternoon. New Book Day is Wednesday. It's our slowest day of the week. <laughs> so there is no point if I'm the only customer there at which you or the owner or any of the other employees cares whether or not you swear. Oh, it's only Mav. Say fuck, say shit. It doesn't matter. Now, if an, if a 10-year-old walks in to buy a comic our book... Conversation, you our of, conversation changes. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And that's... That's just being a decent human being. It's something you and I can both do. Yeah, I mean, you know, it has to, we have to work <laughs> at it. <laughs> well, and and you know, part of it you know, in, in the store, I mean, given the nature of what you were counting, there are so many other things in our store for people to possibly be offended by other than the music. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, the imagery. I mean, you, you were talking, you know, the, the stuff you were counting, the, the study you're doing is, you know, just essentially you know, sexualization, that sort of imagery. And, and it's, yeah. It, yeah, I was what, for, for people who are, just for context, I was literally, I spent an hour and a half looking for sexy pictures on the covers of magazines in the store for an hour and a half and mm-hmm. counting them. That's what I was doing. It's like, yep, there's a boob here. Yep. Okay. That, that's what I did. And, and, for an and hour and a half. There's nothing you know, overtly pornographic hanging on the walls, but, but there's stuff that certainly could be offensive to the, the right clientele. And we've, you know, our location, we're between Pitt and CMU. So the whole college campus things, we're sort of a, branch campus of both Pitt and CMU. So we have a bit more leeway than a lot of stores do. I'm sure stores in the sub- suburbs are a little bit more careful of what they display or what they'll play in the store, that sort of thing. Um, but we've never had an issue with that. When I guess something similar with to that sort of thing, and this is not college campus, it's, no one got fired because we're an independently owned business. When Brave New World was there, the, uh, the CD music store that was a floor above us, yeah, and they have windows that face the street, and they they had a poster up, and I, I can't name the band. It's an old punk band, but it's essentially a Christian cross with the anti symbol drawn over it. Mm-hmm. And there was, I, I guess, some. You know, this sounds cliche, but a little old lady called the cops and said that she felt threatened by that because she was a Christian, and that seemed to be an anti Christian statement. So the cops came up and talked to the people at Brave New World about this, and like, okay, you know, to us, it's the poster of a band. But she just walking down the street made that call. And, you know, like we're independently owned and our essentially our, essentially our reaction to the whole thing was, yeah, gee, that's too bad. Well, and that gets to what we're talking about, because so she was a regular, you know, she wasn't no. a regular customer. She was a person who was offended. She has every right to be offended. I, uh, Larry Mineta has every right to be offended by young Dolph. I, I, I cannot fault him for that. The question becomes now he has used his power. You know, he's used his position of power to enforce his Mm -hmm. will, his ideology on, uh, uh, you have to make sure I'm correct here, but an institution that contracts not even with him directly, they work for someone who works for him indirectly. Yeah, basically. So they're working for Joe Van Gogh. Joe Van Gogh contracts with dining services. And Larry Mineta is the vice president of student affairs who like has a stake in dining services, but I don't believe is overseeing it directly. Right. He would not be he would not really be in the direct path of anything he however he is powerful enough that he essentially 
enforced his will on someone who had because Joe Van Gogh really does have no opportunity. I mean, no, 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 no defense. The you know, if at the end of the day, if Duke doesn't want them there, how many stores? Do, how many stores do they have? So they're you know they're going to lose a significant portion of their business. Oh yeah, I think it'd be, I think it's they have three locations. I'm not so that's so that's thirty three percent. That's essentially give fire two employees or lose thirty three percent of your revenue. Right. Yeah, potentially. I mean, and even if they didn't say it that directly, I'm I'm sure that was implied. Right. Right. And well, and it, it can't not right. be. Even if they don't, you know, they don't mean it. That's how I would take it if I got yeah. that call. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the other thing where I mean, this is where I think that having it be a campus location specifically makes it interesting is because it's not just like it's not exactly. I mean, to me, it's not exactly like the band example because that's a, like that's a business on a public street and not, mm-hmm. a, and a, whereas a campus, especially at a private yeah. institution, we're not really public space in the same way. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's, there's nothing to stop somebody from going there, but there's, it's not where Phantom is, where Brave New World was. Those are on a public yeah. street. They're on Craig street in Pittsburgh. You can just wander up and say, Hey, that looks like a record store. I should, I should like to go buy a record right now. You don't just accidentally go to a coffee shop on a, on a college campus. You go there because you're visiting right. the college campus. Right. And if you, and like, there's a certain expectation when you're on a college campus of you're in a, you're in an environment meant for adults, granted a lot of young adults, but I mean, I like I've taught in my classes, I've taught music before with, you know, swearing and a lot of things that I wouldn't necessarily expose to small children either. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I do it constantly. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, They're not small children. That's, that's the other thing is it's like a college campus and a college classroom often has things and by necessity, actually, because yeah. it's like. Mm-hmm. We're teaching, ostensibly, we're teaching adults. Well, yeah, well, Matt, Matt and I talked about this in, in prep for the show, just talking at the store last week. I know in the classes I've taught, you, one of the things on my syllabus is you know, there's a warning at the end of my syllabus. You know, In this class, you are going to be exposed to images and ideas. It's, it's a class on comics, history, and, and pop culture. You're going to be exposed to images that you find offensive. Good. I find a lot of them offensive. If you if you can't yep. deal with that, don't take this class because part of the purpose of this class is to learn how to interact and dissect these images and deal with them. Yeah, there's an element of analysis. You look at this. What does this say about the history? What does this say about the culture? What is the the larger impact of these images? And you know, in my my class on the '40s, we talk about racial stereotypes, and that leads into some really ugly pictures of minstrel shows and that sort of thing. And you know, we need to talk about this. Yeah, it's, it's actually it's funny you bring that up because that was actually a debate we had on campus a couple of years ago because I think it was um, who did is it Fun Home? Allison Bechtel yeah. is Fun Home is uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was like I like so the I, I think it's the outgoing class at Duke assigns like the reading for the incoming class kind of thing, mm-hmm. and one of the things that like was like the summer reading that you could do, and they did some stuff in orientation. I believe it was Fun Home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think actually Allison Bechtel came in, like, talked about it and everything, but there was this big, like, tight, I mean, on campus, it was a big scandal. Um, but like, there was a, there was a group of students that basically refused to read it. <laughs> While you guys were talking, I, I looked up, I remembered an incident from, and it, this goes in that whole thing of, you know, the squeaky wheel getting, getting the grease, you know, that one person who complains 
that you ruins it for everybody. There was an incident, uh, Crafton Hills College, which I think was in California. This is in 2015. There was uh, graphic novels and curriculum for an English course. And uh, they, the, the student and her parents have called for, and I'm quoting from the article here, the eradication of the books from the system, which that, that's pretty hardcore. The graphic novels in mm-hmm. question were Persepolis, Fun Home, Why the Last Man, and The Sandman. Um, and the, the quote from the student is, it was shocking. I didn't expect to open the book and see that graphic material within. I expected Batman and Robin, not pornography. Tough shit. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the controversy was basically the same as they were like, I can't ha- like I I can't I, like basically I can't read mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. because it like partially because in that case it was because it violated certain religious values, but it was like okay, well then I mean my question is always like, well how then do you expect to be on a college campus? And this is even I think part of Larry Mineta's response is in even though it's not a classroom, it is somewhat anti intellectual. It's like you're offended by something you are on a college campus and part of the part of the like mission statement of duke is basically engendering critical thinking mm-hmm. engendering like mm-hmm. in basically creating intellectual people that can deal with difficult issues well i refer to that directly in the blog um so it, so that's where that's why i took race out of it for a second because now i want to put it back in I also I've taught greatly offensive things in particularly in my comics class, but even in my intro to freshman literature classes, I have things where people one of my favorite books to teach is Tarzan. If you if you've never read Tarzan and most people haven't, most people have seen a Disney cartoon or they remember um, they remember movies from the 50s and 60s. That's not what the book Tarzan is about. The book Tarzan is about a white man who lynches people for fun. I am not joking. That's the plot of the book. Go read it. It shocks every student every time I teach it. Uh, what what ends up happening is people going, I, th- this doesn't seem okay. And that's why I teach it. Do I like Tarzan? I do. I like it because it's not necessarily the best book in the world, but I think it. I think it's good to address d- complicated topics like that in a college class. And that book is about racism white colonialism at its best arguably in favor of it yeah yeah it's arguably in favor of racism the argument the book mostly makes is that a white man left to his own devices among the black savages will naturally rise to become king that is the message of tarzan and it's a problem and i teach at a relatively conservative catholic university again i'm not sure how that happened given you know Clearly, they never Googled me. But <laughs> the, the right person hasn't complained yet. Yeah. Well, no, but they. But I yes. have had complaints with it, and and my answer is yes, it's problematic. That, that's, that's why we're talking about it. In the same class where I taught Tarzan the first time, we read The Great White Hope, which is about fictionalized account of Jack Johnson, who was for various other reasons just uh, pardoned by President Trump today. Yeah, complicated, complicated issue that I don't want to get into. But the reason Jack Johnson went to jail was for a violation of the Man Act. He was the first black heavyweight champion of the world and in boxing and no one liked that. So they put the secession of white boxers in front of him trying to, you know, have anybody beat him. And he just kept knocking them out. So what they did was uh, Jack Johnson was a black man who was married to a white woman. And we, they waited for him to have a out of state boxing match. And when he went to the boxing match, they arrested him there 
for a violation of the Mann Act, which says that it is, is illegal to transport women across straight state lines for the cause of prostitution. That is the that is the law in the state that he went to. The law was written such that any black man with a white woman was therefore engaged in an act of soliciting a prostitute. It was an old law. It was a racist law, but the assumption was because he was with a white woman, that could not happen unless she was a prostitute. And since he that, that was an unnatural, yeah, act. It's an unnatural act. So since he transported her across across state lines, he went to jail for it. He went to prison for it. They were married. You know, they they were in an interracial relationship at a time in which that was greatly frowned upon. I teach that book, so mm-hmm. so that book, you know, uh, Great White Hope has the word nigger in it a lot. It's a play about racism at a time where it was very common. That is a that is a word that occurs well, quite frequently. I mean, the, the cliche in that book. of Huckleberry Finn being banned for that, you know, or attempted to be banned in schools all over. I mean, that's just the classic example of that. Yes. So that's what Mineta's doing. Now, the question becomes, there's no, I mean, you pointed at it, Katia. You said that in protest, they were playing music out, outside the coffee shop the next day. But I bet you, if I go to Duke campus, well, it's a little late right now, but if I go to Duke campus tomorrow afternoon, it's summer, there's going to be students there. Uh, I've never actually been on Duke campus, but I'm just going to imagine that somewhere there is a very large lawn where it's the, it's early summer right now. So there's, there's some kids hanging out there with a boom box or with an iPod playing music that probably is somewhat offensive to someone somewhere. Oh no, absolutely. Like I've walked past like the quad on multiple occasions and heard music that like is, ba- is basically like not it's not the same music, but it's not different really in kind right. um, to what was playing. Because I mean, honestly, if you go look at the, at the lyrics of uh, get paid, I mean, certainly there are things in there that you could find offensive as Mineta did, but like not, not the most offensive music I could find mm-hmm. by far. Now, would this have happened though? If the, if the cashier on duty at the time had, was a white kid who chosen Alice Cooper is blatantly <laughs> satanic, intentionally. <laughs> no, no, he—he—he's. He, I, I mean, I call you there. He's a Christian artist. He, he is overtly Christian. No, no, read, read his bio, read his autobiography. Yeah. He, he's a Christian, okay. and that comes out in all his new music. Okay, so yeah, so, pick, pick, pick so, some other dark metal bands. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, zombie. <laughs> I pick Rob. I, I pick yeah. Rob Zombie. Yeah. Are you going to fight me on that no. one? <laughs> well, no, but, but 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 actually, it's but actually, I'm going to stick with Cooper, and here's why: because certainly he's been criticized for it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, and a misunderstanding of what he's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's been a long time, really. But I mean, he. Well, he's not. Yeah, it's not. I mean, he's. I mean, it's 2018. Alice Cooper's not exactly right. lighting up the charts right now. No, well, and that, yeah. I mean, to be fair, his imagery cr- never dealt with. He never used the like. You know, Black Sabbath would have the 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 pinnacle on their albums and that sort of thing. He never did that. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. He he never embraced that imagery. He had dead babies and shit. But you know, my point was my point. What I was really going for is he is trying to be offensive. Dead babies are not an accident, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Ozzy Osbourne's pentagrams. Even there, if you listen to the lyrics of that song, he's criticizing parents who aren't good at what they're doing. Well, and I mean, this song is also criticizing basic, like basically, right? Yeah, 
Yeah. That's where I was going with it. <laughs> it's, you know, there, he's making a point. It's not just, this is not, no one writes a song that's like, fuck, 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 fuck. There are, uh, <laughs> other than on South Park, which, you know, which also even had a point, you know, uh, there, you know, there are reasons why you swear. There are reasons that we decided we were allowed to do that on this show. We want to be able to, it's not gratuitous. And I, I feel like with young Dolph, he's making a point. And my question becomes, if he had been a white artist, if it had been a white cashier, would Manetta have blinked? Yeah, right. I mean, I think that's a $10,000 question. But also, it's not just that, but would they, got, would they have gotten fired? Because would that complaint have gone through? Because I think the other part of this is, is not just being offended. It's also not understanding what that song is trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. But even if it were... I'm, I, I am a gangster rap fan. I used to have a regular nine to five office job where I was the lead designer. So I often worked a little later than other people. I would, I, I might work till six or seven some days when you're designing. It's, it's a very lonely world. So I, I sit there and I have my headphones on and I have my iPod playing and I either listen to podcasts, satellite radio, or I listen to just music. So there'd be days where if I had a particularly tough day, it's gangster rap day. And I used to joke on Twitter, oh, all the white people are gone. Time to turn up the <laughs> time to turn up the NWA. And and there are, you know, there are points, there are some songs yeah. where they are blatantly trying to be offensive for the sake of being offensive. And that's okay. I, I'm not saying that he has to be having a good message. I'm saying that in this particular case, he was trying to make a point. And that point is lost, which is sort of problematic. At a place which specifically states that it's, you know, its mission statement, which we printed on the blog, is to enrich young minds and, you know, consider complicated subjects or something, whatever, however they phrased it. Right. And then the official response is basically like, let's not consider complicated subjects. Let us move on. (laughs) Basically like about face. This never happened. No one think about it because it's bad press. And they keep, I mean, and that's, and I think that's, and it's not just Duke that does that. It's universities across the country. Right. Right. Particularly when it comes to race or, and we we had some other examples on the blog, race or gender, the generic, you know, kind of the cliche way of putting it is the world's great. If you're, if you're a white man, sorry, Wayne, (laughs) but, but, but it sucks for, it sucks for everyone else. And yeah, I mean, uh, Simmons is a, is a white man and frankly kind of just got caught in the crossfire as far as I could tell, because I don't think he was involved yeah. in any way, shape or form other than he happened yeah. to be standing there. Right. Uh, no, I think that's probably Even if you want to claim that Brown did something wrong, and I'm very much on the Brittany Brown was completely 100% in the right phase here. She even offered to comp Manetta's drinks for him. So if you want to claim that she did something wrong, Simmons is guilty of nothing other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time. If he wanted to sue, that's the most open and shut lawsuit ever. He literally was just standing there. Yeah. And he, and he was fired for nothing. Um, as far as I could tell, like there's no, there's no, there's no claim that he was playing the music. He literally just happened to right. be on duty <laughs> at the time that someone. So, okay. So I had to look ass. it up uh, for the, the metal thing. Norwegian metal bands, black metal. They, they named they name two very specifically, Burzum and Emperor. And let me just read a sentence. 
Musicians and fans of the Norwegian black metal scene alone took part in over 50 arsons of Christian churches from 1992 to 1996. Wow. I'm, I'm just, I'm just trying to get Alex Cooper off the hook here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I apologize to Alex Cooper and his family. First, first metal band that popped into my head. I actually like Alex Cooper. <laughs> so, but no, but yeah, I did just, I, yeah. And, and those, and those, it's Nor, it's, it's Norway. Those guys are really white. <laughs> I mean, I think also the thing that, I mean, I kind of want to go to one of the examples you brought up on the blog post, Mav, um, okay. where I've, you know the, know the example better, but where the uh, student basically stripped during mm-hmm. a presentation. Yes. Another thing where basically being offensive and like the shock value of it. Okay. So that was a gender-based one instead of, I, I was going to go with the yellow one, but we'll do, let's do her first. That's uh, Letitia Chai. She is a female senior at Cornell University. And she was doing the dry run of her senior thesis. So for anyone who's never done this sort of thing before, when you present a thesis, it's a big deal. They invite lots of people and you essentially read your work. And then everyone asks you really hard questions and tries to make, you know, crush your own spirits. <laughs> and then you graduate. That, 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 that is the hope. <laughs> it is. It is, a, it, is, it is a horrible, horrible process. I'm not sure why we're doing this to ourselves. But she was doing this. And because it's so stressful and hard, the way we present it is, hey, I'm going to present my work. And then you're going to ask me questions. And I'm just going to answer them. But what really happens is you do a dry run a day, two days, a week before, maybe several dry runs where you, you know, you practice it. You either get some of your favorite professors together to, to watch you. Maybe you do it in front of some friends. And you sort of... You know, you give your presentation in a room and then you have people ask you some questions that they might expect you to get so that you can just sort of it's just a practice event. So she was doing this. She was doing her practice event and a female professor, one of her professors who was there said, well, the problem is I don't like how you're dressed. You're inviting the male gaze. She was wearing a tank top and cut off jean shorts. And I hope you don't intend to dress like that during the actual defense um, because it is completely inappropriate. And what would your mother think? And that pissed off the student. As it should. Yeah, as it, as it absolutely should. Yes, it's a dry run for what is a formal event, but the dry right. run in itself is not a formal event. Professional dress does not apply. Yeah, if I if I am doing a dry run like this, in all honesty, you're 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 lucky if I'm wearing clothes at all. I've been prepping for this conversation for the last forty minutes. I've been slowly taking my clothes off in protest this entire time. <laughs> right, right. Because because oh, and I didn't say that. What um what her response was was after she you know she got into an argument with the professor and did not like being asked, what would your mother think? She said, my mother is a feminist and my mother is completely okay with, uh, with tank tops and shorts. And thank you very much. And her response was to go on Twitter that night, tell everyone she knew who was going to her actual defense the next day to make sure they wore their nicest underwear. And then she gave her, her, her dissertation, her thesis. And as she was doing it, Begin, there's there's video on online. She addressed the situation with the professor and then stripped her her underwear and invited the audience to do the same. Of which something like twenty eight people in the audience also stripped <laughs> with her, <laughs> stripped along with her. And that was her little protest. She went viral because of it. And I am of the opinion that 
college has a couple of different purposes in it. And as her instructor, it is certainly the professor's job to impress upon her charges what is the and isn't the appropriate uh, manner of clothing for uh, for an event. You're 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 teaching people a certain formal way of writing. Katya and I both teach mm-hmm. intro to writing classes and you know, it's my job to make sure that you don't curse in your, in your academic papers. It's my job to make sure you don't use the word ain't that you don't even use the first person or the second person pronouns. It is my job to teach you a very specific certain way of writing. One that I frankly think is stupid. And anybody who reads my blog will notice that I don't write in academic language except for when i have to. Yeah. Yeah. When you you, yeah my, the you dissertation I've read are right. very different than your blog. As, as they should be. Yeah. Even given the kinds of things that I write about when I'm writing for an actual academic audience, I, you know, I don't curse like a sailor the way I do in real life. It's my job to teach students that. And it's sort of my job to, to, I mean, to teach them, you can't, you know, wear cutoff shorts when presenting in class. I don't think I would have to, it, it's it's honestly never come up. I've done class uh, class presentations and they're formal and the students just sort of know know that. So I would never assume, I would never presume that she was going to dress that way on the actual day. So that's kind of a problem. Also, the way in which she put it was very problematic. And I don't know that she would have spoken to a male student that way. Yeah, there's a difference between saying like, oh, make sure you dress in X, Y, and Z fashion for the formal event because that's the expectation and saying you're inviting the male gay. What would your mother think? Yes. Right, what would your mother think? Because it's like, it's like, first of all, like, as, a, as an advisor, as a faculty member, like, your relationship to the student, like, despite the age relationship, which is, for some people, quasi-parental, you're not mm-hmm. their parent. Right. Like, that relationship is entirely professional. Ostensibly, the student is, albeit indirectly, paying you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're, pay, they're, they're paying you to be your underling. It's a very odd power dynamic that doesn't exist anywhere other than college. Uh, you know, um, it, it's different than the, than the power dynamic in high school or elementary school where, where the student is not directly paying you. And also, there is more of a parental re- relationship. And it's different than a job because they're the, your boss is paying you, even if they're not doing it directly, even if it's just a manager, they're sort of uh, implied you're being paid to be there. Even at the grad school level, you know, we're funded. So we're sort of paid to be there. Not a lot, but we're paid at the undergrad level. There is very much a who's the boss. You know, I'm paying for this, but the professor still has a very real power over the student, which is why we have certain rules and regulations protecting certain things about what what is and isn't appropriate. And that very much wasn't. Yeah. And I mean, it's also happening in a context. I mean, this goes back to like, the, I mean, also like the broader culture of academia, the broader culture of academia polices the way that women dress all the time. Mm-hmm, absolutely. One of the times that I like, I've personally been told, like when you teach or when you go to interviews, you dress in this particular way. And I mean, on the one hand, like when it's coming from faculty, like that's something that is a big deal when you go to campus interviews and things like that. Um, it probably is a bigger deal than it should be. But absolutely. It is. But I do know that like women get a difference, like get, to, get a very different set of advice from men. And it is often like even if it's not as explicitly, I mean, 
it's the same kind of commentary is it's basically like you can't look too feminine you can't look too much like this you can't look like like that whereas like at least from what i get from my male colleagues is like you just have to look professional yeah i'm older than most grad students i get away with more that other people don't but there is a certain even as a teacher as an instructor there's sort of trying to create a you know a a certain aura of authority that makes you want to dress in a way that's not how your students dress. Frankly, like right now I'm wearing a t-shirt and jeans. I look exactly like every student that I've ever taught. That's what I'm wearing. Cause I'm, I'm, you know, I'm broadcasting from my home, right. but when I teach, I wear a tie. Um, I, yeah. I also wear jeans. A lot of people won't. A lot of people will not. I don't have to. I've got professors who wear, you know, hoodies and jeans every day. My my job is incredibly informal. I just kind of wear whatever I want, you know, which is a lot of comics and band themed T-shirts and, and jeans. When I go to teach, I put on uh, it's jeans, but you know, typically my, my darkest unfaded black jeans. But I do a nice shirt and a, a suit jacket. Like, you know, I, I'm very aware of, you know, it's it's a costume. I'm putting on my professor costume to go teach. It, it, it puts me in the, the mindset, first of all, but it also creates a bit of a barrier, barrier, boundary, um, something with the students. Not, not that I want to be a barrier with my students, but there's, it, it helps define the role for me. And yet, and I have friends who, who teach full time and they really don't do much of that at all anymore because they're there full time and they've been doing it for years and, and, they're they're comfortable in that position. I know for myself, there's still an element of time to put on the professor outfit. So then the question becomes, yes, there is something to be said for having professional attire in the professional situation. Why do you have to wear, I mean, even outside of academia, why are some jobs places that you have to wear a tie all the time? But the rules are probably... I mean, well, they're they're certainly nonsensical. I mean, there a necktie do, a necktie does nothing, and certainly the uh, the way that women are required to dress professionally mm-hmm. does very little. I, there are rules that you know are sort of put in place. Uh, we would call it, uh, and I'll be all academic here, and okay. it would be called hegemony. There are rules that are put in place to sort of control the culture, control the people through controlling the culture of the, uh, of the organization. And and most of them are, are unfair and ridiculous and, and people can see that, but it's still, it's the way things are done. Right. And most of them almost always, whenever you're, whenever you're talking about these rules. So how do you dress? How do you have to speak when the language that we were talking about, you know, it's our job to teach freshmen sophomores to write in an academic tone by an academic tone by professional dress what we mean is we are trying to train you to be as much like a stereotypical 45 year old white businessman as we possibly can right i guess so to loop back a little bit like i do want to push back a little bit on the idea of like hegemony and that it's often like apparent mm-hmm. and visible that they're ridiculous because I think what's interesting about a lot of the cases that we pointed out is that in the cases that we wrote about in the blog, it yeah. does seem obvious. Like it's, it seems obvious in the case of like the, the, you know, the girl who's stripping in the middle of her thesis defense, like that it's obvious that that's an inappropriate comment in the case of Joe Van Gogh, it is obvious or should be obvious that these workers shouldn't have gotten fired for, you know, music, which is pretty normal on a college campus. We chose the worst ones. Right. 
And so, and I mean, I guess it's, but each of these cases are basically moments that went viral, got, got, you know, either local or national attention mm-hmm. for things that are happening all the time. On smaller levels. Yeah. I mean, right. Cause like, like, I mean, just to go back to the Joe Van Gogh situation, cause that's the one I'm most familiar with personally is that that's the, the, the precarity that sort of of workers that's exemplifying that example is happening on campuses all the time and it's happening to campus workers. It's also mm-hmm. happening to adjuncts um, mm-hmm. at Duke and elsewhere. Um, and for those of you who aren't academics, you don't know what adjuncts are, but it's basically adjuncts are the academic equivalent of contract laborers. Mm-hmm. You're paid per course and it is extremely difficult to make a living. And basically- yeah, which, which has been my experience. Uh, that's how I've, I've taught classes mm-hmm. as, is as an adjunct. Right. And adjuncting is increasingly normal at like more and more universities that used to rely primarily on tenure track faculty. Because they don't have to pay as much. Exactly. And so basically the more, and so the more adjunct labor there is, the fewer actual like full-time teaching jobs, tenure track jobs, Mm -hmm. actual professorships there are. Um, And universities are increasingly moving towards that kind of labor. And they're also doing, I mean, Duke's doing the same thing with contract labor. They're moving away from having full-time employees Mm -hmm. that they're actually responsible for. And they're moving to these contracts like Joe Van Gogh, where they can basically say like, oh, we don't actually have to deal with this, but we also want to police what's going on in these businesses, even though they're not our own. For additional information for people to realize, uh, with adjunct labor for teaching, you're yeah. paid per course, not per hour. To a to a level, right. I mean, you're effectively a temp, and you are paid to a level that, if you do the math, is frequently making less than minimum wage. Yeah, and literally to teach a college right. course. Well, and also. And you are as qualified, generally speaking, you have the same qualifications as someone who yes. has a full-time yes. teaching gig. Um, you still have a PhD, you still have to be researching, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not actually, so it's basically saying if you're an adjunct, you're probably qualified to have a full-time teaching job at the institution mm-hmm. you're adjuncting at. Right. They just don't want to Those become issues of the culture that, again, like uh, like you said, we picked the, the, the stripping student, we picked Joe Van Gogh. Uh, we have another example on, on the blog of a, a Yale student, a Yale grad student, African-American, who was taking a nap on the sofa in the common room of her own dorm and a white student uh, called the cops to have her arrested because this person doesn't belong there. She was literally you know, in the lounge outside of her own bedroom, but they don't belong there presumably because they were black. It's the, I mean, I don't recognize you and, and therefore, and, and she was harassed for it, which is, you know, obviously problematic. She did belong there. She very much did. Um, So this becomes an issue of for all we don't hear these stories very often about, oh, we fired a, you know, 22 year old white male barista for playing heavy metal music Um, again. Simmons aside, who was, as far as I can tell, fired for no apparent reason officially. But we we don't we don't see we don't hear those stories. We don't hear as many stories about men in general being policed for their dress. Certainly not white men. Uh, And it happens in a way that becomes problematic because it's becoming it's becoming more and more common to the fact that we didn't have to look hard to find three stories for this blog post when we decided we wanted to do it. It's just, it's happening on college campuses 
it's happening everywhere, but it's happening on college campuses frequently enough to where it's a problem because college campuses are supposed to be a place where you're discussing free ideas. Is it a safe space? What does safe space mean? But the idea is, is supposed to be by mission statement that we are looking to sort of engage in diversity and in different kinds of culture, but then to crush it based on we're all the three of us are all pretty liberal. If you, you should be able to figure that out if you've been listening for more than two seconds, but to crush it based on anybody's specific ideology is sort of not really seeking by diversity. Absolutely. I mean, I think especially because I, I think it's, especially in the case of like Joe Van Gogh, but I think even all the, like a lot of the other cases, it's sort of like the people that are seeking these like quote unquote safe spaces and are trying to like create the safe spaces are actually the people who are create, making it hostile. Yeah. Yeah. And it's by basically saying like, Oh, this person napping on a couch, this person who's dressing in a way I don't like this person who's playing music. I don't like. And it's basically saying like, those things are like, those are offensive. Those, those are things that are like out of place or they're going counter to my assumptions of what this space should be. Um, and I think especially, especially they're counter to my implicit and not really acknowledged assumptions about what this space should be and what it should look like and what it should sound like. And then basically enforcing that on other people and the with the apparent intention to make a safe space for who I don't entirely understand. The children protect the children. <laughs> right, who are not present? Who, who aren't there? Well, and 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 I I find that sort of attitude offensive. Who do I call to get him fired? Yeah. <laughs> well, so I want to I want to go I want to do one more story just because this it, literally the story I guess you'd say broke. Five minutes after we posted the blog and I was I was told about it by like three different people. And I, I actually commented on it on, on the Facebook group. But there is a story at Kent State. There is a student who is a, uh, a white woman white, and she decided to take her student photos. Yeah. Dressed, yeah. And I, I found this amazing just because, you know, given what we were talking about. And in the um, the rifle strapped to her or something for graduation. Yeah, she took her student photos at Kent State, wandering around carrying an AR-15 because she wanted to protest for the right to bear arms by students. This is at Kent State campus, which is mostly famous kent state's a very good school but it's mostly famous for one specific and it's incident to where they get to be touchy about guns and she was um if you don't know look it up but yes um she she was vilified by a lot of students who complain and she claimed that they were being racist towards her because uh, they were telling her that she was that she was able to carry the gun around because of white privilege and she said that's racist no one would say that to her if she was black if she was black someone would have shot her yes yeah yeah she is in she is in ohio she is in a state where a cop gunned down a boy named Tamir Rice for carrying a a fake gun not far from where she is walking around with a loaded semi-automatic rifle. And people have rightly said quite frequently to her, you are getting away with this because you're white. And that's sort of a, it's sort of a weird problem that that story just came up at the same time. She was allowed to wander around her campus carrying this gun 
and got jobs, you know, not jobs, but she got appearances on Fox News to talk about how important it was to protect her right to do so in the same week that a black woman was fired for allowing a rap song to play <laughs> to, to play on the radio. Right. Or like napping in a dorm. And this is why we decided this is popular culture. You know, the big question of what does it mean to be a social justice warrior or, or what does it mean to be woke in America in 2018? Uh, a big part of our culture is our ideology right now. You know, you know, we don't sell it. It's not like it's not like it's you buy it, like it's a ticket to a movie. But a big topic of discussion on social media is no matter which side you're on, even for, for the people who disagree with me and who think that you know, she absolutely was right to be carrying this gun around. This is something people are talking about. If you think that it's wrong to be playing offensive music on the radio in a public space 100% of the time, that's something people talk about. So it becomes a question of culture and it makes and it's something that, that we need to discuss, that we do discuss daily on Facebook, on Twitter, on Tumblr. I, I, I just think it's sort of interesting and arguably awful that we can have these discussions daily on Facebook and one of the most prestigious universities in the country, arguably in the world has decided to do everything they can to shut that conversation down on their own campus. Not even, I mean, and that's the other thing is it's not even, which I think is why it's a little bit different, especially from like the stripping in uh, classroom example is that there was never really a conversation because it was in the context of like, this was just happening in a mm-hmm. coffee shop. And this person and like the people involved were like let go within a matter of days. And so there was never really a discussion about it. And then also, as far as my understanding is, there hasn't been a discussion about it previously. Like there was never any regulation said that you can or you can't play this or there's some sort of premeditated reason for why this might may or may not be acceptable. It was just literally as far as I understand, as all the information I can find and especially like I have maybe more access to those policies as a Duke student. But as far as I can figure out, it's basically just like this one person's preference. And to like loop it back into the Kent state issue is that, I mean, all of these things, and this has even come up with a Joe Van Gogh situation um, and Duke historically as well. They're all sort of dancing around this question of what counts as free speech on campus. Mm-hmm. Because all of these different examples touch on basically like these moments of like whether it's speech or disseminating culture or just playing a you know a song in a coffee shop, it's like the idea of what isn't isn't permissible in public. Um, what I think mm-hmm. is especially brought up by the Kent State issue, and it's this idea of like what counts as acceptable culture. And I think one of the things you were talking about, like these conversations we're having on Facebook. I mean, I think that's. That's a huge conversation of what's going on Facebook is the idea of what what we are and aren't allowed to complain about. I mean, just n- not to bring in a completely uh, other thing, but I know, Mav, you were talking about this, I think, uh, about the NFL ban on Kaepernick. It's like, mm-hmm. what are we allowed to say in public? And if it's not to critique or complain about things or actually have a discussion, then what's the point of having free speech anyway? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, no, obviously he's not a college campus right. issue, but it's still, you know, there is, it is still an issue. And my complaint, man, maybe this is an episode for closer to football season, but my, <laughs> my complaint with, with the Kaepernick issue 
particularly relevant today because the NFL just announced that they were requiring standing for the national anthem. My critique has always been no matter how you feel about what he's doing, I happen to be in favor, big surprise given who I am, but no matter how you feel about what he's doing, if you're forcing him to stand for the national anthem, when you are 100% aware that he doesn't want to, then you haven't really won anything because you have taken his freedom away. Right. You've taken away his freedom. Let's say he's completely wrong. And again, I don't think he is, but let's say he's completely wrong and not standing for the for the anthem makes you an asshole. Okay, fine. But now you have decided there's this person who I think is an asshole and I am forcing him to behave in a way that I know he doesn't want to. And and I think that when you're forcing him to behave in the way that you want, you're effectively becoming the bad guy because now you don't have, you've not changed anybody's mind. The point of a conversation should be, if not to change a mind, but at least to sort of understand each other. And you've essentially said, no, I don't care what your point of view is. Just do this thing that makes me comfortable. And I think that's what Mineta's doing. Mineta isn't, he's not trying to understand why the N-word was used. He's not trying to express to the employees why he found it uncomfortable for him uh whether i think he has a right to feel that way or not what he's essentially said is i am pulling rank you don't get to do this because because i say so and that doesn't enrich anybody's mind it doesn't show any diversity all it does is homogenize this entire world based on one specific individual's point of view and shuts down shuts down dissent Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, pretty serious like consequences for somebody's livelihood. Yes, yeah, and and that's the whole, yeah that's the really horrible part. Like you know, these people lost their jobs, not the you know, jobs that I you know they were coffee shop employees. They weren't rich, and I'm sure they depended on them. Yeah, because of of his offense, someone's not paying their rent this month. Yeah, uh, yeah. although ironically, I, like Young Dolph actually paid each worker, I think like ten thousand dollars. Yeah, which which I think is great. I, yeah. that's, that's that is I, I I saw that. Yeah, he you know felt bad about what happened, something that he had no control of whatsoever, but just essentially donated proceeds from his most recent concert to these two people, which right. is which is great. That's one person yeah. doing the right thing. It's, the right. it's also insane because it started over a song that's literally entitled "Get Paid." Doesn't want to pay them. And then Nungal is paying them because he's basically like, this is dumb. <laughs> Which it is. It's like, this is like, this is, this is like fundamentally ridiculous. Like the idea that someone should lose their job on a, like for us, for a rap song on a college campus where rap music is played all the time. I've taught rap music in my classes. So have I. Right. And, and like, no, no one's ever batted an eyelash. And most of my students are like, yeah, we listen to things like we, we listen to this all the time, which is why we teach it. I teach rap music in my poetry unit for my intro to literature class. And then I teach with it poetry, which in many occasions is far more offensive than the rap lyrics <laughs> that, um, that, that I'm comparing them to. Right. I mean, as is, I mean, there's a lot of like, quote unquote, like literary texts that are just as offensive, if not more so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's probably a good place to stop, uh, to stop. Much like always, I don't think we've solved anything. And I don't think that's really the purpose of this show. It's more just to sort of talk about, you know, the cultural significance of it. Here's hoping we offended somebody. 
<laughs> uh, every single day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> call, call Mav. He'll fire the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not doing the show by myself. Are you just kidding? <laughs> There's no way <laughs> I would fire myself first. <laughs> That's one way to get rid of dissent. Yeah. Kadi, I'm glad you've come back and hopefully you'll be around more often now that the semester's over. Yeah, let's hope. yeah so i'm you know we've been talking hopefully next week we're going to do something that's a little bit more interesting if plans go right we're going to be talking about comics again but not the kind of comics that i think people are used to yeah 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 a a much more personal project for me so in the meantime katia for people who have been listening to this episode and still and are still listening what can they do if they are and i hope they are suitably outraged by this um so we'll post a link to a petition that the um, durham workers uh, assembly is circulating and that's a basically a group of unions not just at duke but around uh sort of the region um that drafted a code of conduct which is similar to ones that other universities have signed on to i think duke and georgetown have both signed one that basically says that we wanted them to sign on to a set of rules that basically like this is how you're going to treat workers, whether they're unionized or not um, in the future. And that would hopefully at least begin to address some of these issues. So we'll have a petition on there. You can sign whether you're affiliated with the university or not um, as a community member. So I am not affiliated and I have signed it. So cool. Thank you. But I want to thank everybody for listening and bearing with us during during this episode, which, you know, again, maybe not as fun as some of our topics, but I think very much important. I want to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our theme song, which I am not going to complain is too long this week because again, I love the, I love the song. Yeah, notice how I, how I did not complain right there. That's brilliant. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening to this, I hope you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review because apparently that does magic. That makes the algorithm make us more popular, and we need that. Uh, follow us on Twitter at Vox Popcast. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com/slash Vox Popcast, and follow the blog at VoxPopcast.com. Follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or my website at www.chrismaverick.com. You guys. I have a blog at www.wayne-wise.com. And Katia? I really do not exist on the internet. (laughs) She is invisible. We are talking to a phantom. (laughs) That's kind of impressive. (laughs) I mean, I have like personal social media accounts, but they're not like academic. I mean, if you want to, if you want to learn about vintage sewing stuff, you're welcome to follow me at Instagram at just that nerd kid. That's perfect. Actually, you, actually you do want to learn. She, she makes amazing clothes that I often see on Instagram. So, and for everyone else, write us and let us know what you'd like to see us talk about next. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.